Can't Wait for Christmas is a proud member of the Christmas Podcast Network. Check out all the shows on the network at christmaspodcastnetwork.com. Hey, buddy, what you doing? Is it Christmas yet? No, sorry, not yet. I can't wait for Christmas. Yeah, I can't wait for Christmas either. In fact, let's celebrate now. <laughs> Welcome to the Can't Wait for Christmas podcast. It's October 25th, 2020, and that means there's only two months left until Christmas. Today on the show, we'll try and settle the debate about the film The Nightmare Before Christmas. Is it a Christmas movie or a Halloween movie? Also, we'll count down the top five Christmas sketches from Saturday Night Live, remind you to order your Christmas cards, and we're in the home stretch of our made-for-podcast Christmas movie, A Bomb for Christmas. Okay, let's start the show! Yule Believers, it's me, Tim Babb, host of the Can't Wait for Christmas podcast, and we're getting close now. Halloween is almost here, which means Christmas isn't far behind. I went to grab some stuff at a hardware store the other day, and they had huge aisles of Christmas stuff next to the Halloween stuff, which is great, because I was beginning to think Halloween would never get here. It seems like this year is taking forever, which is why we can't wait until the official Christmas season. We need a little Christmas. Now. We need a This Christmas Now tip is about the time-honored tradition of sending Christmas cards. In a year when we're going to see a lot less of our families this holiday season, we definitely want to send some Yuletide love through the mail. And if you remember our episode on the U.S. Postal Service from earlier this year, you'll know that the coronavirus crisis has got the mail overworked. So, even more than in Christmases past, it's important to get your mailings out as early as possible. Fortunately, the Can't Wait for Christmas podcast store has our new 2020 photo card designs ready to order right now. How did I know this was going to be a shameless plug for the podcast store? Oh, hush, imaginary listener that sounds kind of like Kermit the Frog. People want to send out fun-looking Christmas cards, and we can help them do that. We've got a bunch of new designs for you to add your photos to this year, including a Santa with a face mask on that says, Next year, all our troubles will be miles away. Also, this is the first year that I realized the title of this show is a perfect sentiment to put on a Christmas card. So you can put your photo on a card that says, Your family name can't wait for Christmas. And for you animal lovers out there, I've added two pet-friendly options. One says, we wish you the perfect Christmas, and the other says, Feliz Navidad. <laughs> Your boy. I said hush. Anyway, you can check them all out at Zazzle.com slash Can't Wait for Christmas, or follow the link in the show notes at Can't Wait for Christmas Pod. And now it's time for our countdown feature, Five Golden Things. Five Golden Things. This list was double-inspired from something that happened in our last episode. Last time, a listener wrote in with a review of It's a Wonderful Life. In the review, they mentioned that their one regret was that Mr. Potter doesn't get his comeuppance for essentially stealing $8,000 from George Bailey. After the episode, Brandon left a comment on our Facebook saying that there was an SNL sketch that actually addressed this. And then he added, hey, there's an idea for our five golden things, the five best Christmas SNL sketches, which I was just discussing with my wife at the exact same time he 
was leaving that comment. So that's exactly what we're going to do. A top five Christmas SNL sketches. But a couple of disclaimers first. Number one, it should be noted that Saturday Night Live is an adult targeted program on late, late at night. As such, some of the content may not be appropriate for small children. Uh, some? Okay, imaginary listener, it sounds kind of like George Bailey. Quite a bit of the content is not appropriate for small children. Well, that's better. Now, I'm not going to play the saltier parts of these sketches, but if you're uncomfortable with some slightly unseemly insinuations, you may want to skip ahead to the next segment. And the second thing I want to mention before we start is that I'm breaking this into two lists. There were so many sketches that I have arbitrarily decided that today's list will not contain any music. There are only spoken word sketches. In a future episode, I'll do a top five musical sketches from SNL, but that's for another time. Let's get this list started with... Number five. It's a Wonderful Life alternate ending. Ladies and gentlemen, tonight marks an historic, not to say unique, moment in the history of both television and cinema. After a search of nearly 40 years, the fabled lost ending to Frank Capra's 1947 film, It's a Wonderful Life, has been found. Tonight, for the first time anywhere, Saturday Night Live is proud to present this priceless footage, the fully realized vision of an authentic American genius. So without further ado, here is the lost ending of It's a Wonderful Life. Had to include the sketch that inspired this list. I played a little bit of this when we did our It's a Wonderful Life episode a while back. Part of what makes this sketch so funny is it scratches an itch we've all had since seeing the movie. We wanted some consequence for Potter. And in this sketch where the town of Bedford Falls beats the stuffing out of him, it's just the fan fiction we needed. Number four. Mr. Robinson's Neighborhood. Hello, boys and girls. You know Christmas is a special time in Mr. Robinson's Neighborhood. It's a time for giving. And look what Mr. Landlord gave me. It's an eviction notice. <laughs> well, that's why Mr. Robson has to wear this Santa Claus suit to sneak in and out of his building. This was Eddie Murphy's classic character that was a parody of Mr. Rogers. Seeing how this character spends Christmas is certainly entertaining. Although I find it hard to believe anyone is paying him any amount of money for those janky DIY Cabbage Patch dolls he made. Number three. Glenn Gary, Glenn Christmas, Elf Motivation. The good news is you're fired. The bad news is you've got all, you've got one week to regain your jobs, starting with tonight's build. Oh, have I got your attention now? Good. Because we're adding a little something to this month's toy contest. As you know, first prize is a shiny new toboggan. Anybody want to see second prize? Second prize is a box of candy canes. Third prize is you're fired. Everybody get the picture? You're laughing now? Huh? I've never actually seen the movie Glengarry Glen Ross, but I have watched the famous scene with Alec Baldwin motivating the salesman with his harsh speech. So when they got him to reprise the role as an elf berating the elves in the workshop at the North Pole, it was a pretty good idea. But the part that really got me was when he's supposed to say, always be cobbling, but he accidentally said the original line from the film, always be closing. He eventually corrected himself, but he and Seth Meyers start laughing. That's what pushed this sketch over the top for me. I love it. That's how it landed on this list. Remember, boys and girls, always, A, always, B, B, C, closing. Always be clo- co- always be cobbling, always be cobbling. <laughs> Number two. Steve Martin's Holiday Wish. You know, if I had three wishes that I could make this holiday season, the first, of course, would be for all the children to get together and sing. The second would be for the $30 million every month to me. And the third would be 
for all-encompassing power over every living being <laughs> and the entire universe. And if I had four wishes that I could make this holiday season, the first would be the crap about the kids. <laughs> I've loved Steve Martin for as long as I can remember. The name of the reporter character in A Bomb for Christmas is an homage to one of his old stand-up bits. This holiday wish sketch is a great example of his comedy, a holiday wish that starts sincere but branches off into crazy town. The sketch was so popular, Steve Martin came back and did a new version years later. Honorable mentions! President Ford Holiday Address. Here is your cognac, Mr. President. Fred, you've been with me a long time now. I don't think on Christmas Eve you have to call me Mr. President anymore. Uh, Mr. President, my name is Frank. <laughs> Frank? Uh-huh. Uh, what should I call you? Well, how about Dr. President? <laughs> These days, Saturday Night Live is known a lot for its biting political satire. But in the beginning, their take on President Ford was just an excuse for Chevy Chase to do a bunch of pratfalls. Still an enjoyable sketch, though. Another honorable mention goes to Visit with Santa. And kids, you know, just a reminder to keep your wishes light and Christmassy and not political, okay? All right. That's good, because I hate politics. Oh, thank the Lord. Instead, I want to talk about opioids. Nope, you're not. Thank you very much, From not political to super political. This was just a goofy idea of kids asking a mall Santa difficult political and social questions. The questions aren't the funny part, but Kenan Thompson and Kate McKinnon's reactions to the kids' increasingly political questions is really what makes me laugh. And now it's time for... Number one. Shweddy... Uh... Shweddy... Well, a guy named Shweddy comes on an NPR-type show. Play the clip. Well, Christmas is a time for traditional foods and bite-sized treats, and we have a very special guest today. That's right, Terry. He's the owner of his own holiday bakery with a very, very clever name. Seasons Eatings. (laughs) That's really funny. (laughs) I know, it rhymes with season's greetings. Uh, please welcome the owner of season's eatings, Pete Schwetty. Welcome. How are welcome, you? Pete. We like the name of your store. Hi, thanks for having me. Now, did I pronounce your name uh, correctly? You sure did. Pete Schwetty. Well, Pete... Terry and I have been looking forward to having you on the show because we know you're the master of all kinds of Christmas goodies. Tell us about them. Well, there are lots of great treats this time of year. Zucchini bread, fruitcake. But the thing that I most like to bring out at this time of the year on my ball... And that's where we're going to stop the playback on that one. So, Alec Baldwin is back on this list with a classic sketch where the entire joke is an extended double entendre. Well, I shouldn't say the entire joke. This parody of NPR radio is still what I imagine all NPR radio sounds like. Regardless, it definitely made me laugh a lot back in the day, and it's one of the most quoted sketches over the years. So, I had to put it at number one. And that's my list. Did I leave your favorite sketch out? Probably if it involves singing, but remember, I'm going to do another list of musical Saturday Night Live Christmas sketches on a future show. So if you have suggestions for that list or favorites that you would have put on this list, head on over to the website and leave us a comment at can'twaitforchristmaspod.com. But now that we're getting closer to Christmas, more people are talking about it. So it's time to check in with the Can't Wait for Christmas news desk for our next segment, All I Want for Christmas is News. Baby, all I want for Christmas is news. 
that news, baby. Yeah, news. So sadly, the big news of Christmas lately is how COVID is affecting things. Like for the first time in 159 years, Santa's little helpers will not be visiting Macy's stores in person this year. The North Pole is filled with magic, but even they don't have a cure for coronavirus yet. Now, all is not completely lost, though. Macy's will have a virtual experience where you can walk through Santa's village and workshop and interact with Santa via video. Kind of like a Zoom call to the North Pole. More on the bright side news, for the first time, Lowe's will deliver your Christmas tree this year. If you don't want to venture out, you can order your fresh-cut trees and wreaths online, and they'll deliver it to you in a few days. And if what you ordered is more than $45, there's no charge for delivery. Also, side tip, Lowe's has a lot of Disney-themed Christmas decorations. When I was out for that home improvement project I mentioned at the top of the show, I may have scored myself a Mickey Mouse ornament projector thing. Hmm, maybe. Who knows? But anyway, back to the news. And not all the Christmas news is COVID-related. Some of it relates to the battle of the streaming services. So you see, for the first time since it aired originally in 1965, a Charlie Brown Christmas won't air on broadcast television this year. The only place you can find it is on Apple TV. They bought the exclusive rights to it, along with the rights to The Great Pumpkin Charlie Brown and A Charlie Brown Thanksgiving. However, part of the deal was that Apple had to make these specials available for free at some point during the season. So each special has a window where you can watch it for free. Great Pumpkin's window is October 30th through November 1st. The Thanksgiving special is available between November 25th and 27th. And It's a Charlie Brown Christmas will be available for free on Apple TV from December 11th to the 13th. What if I don't have any Apple products to watch Apple TV on? Well, then hopefully you're like me and have it saved on your DVR. <laughs> you can't outsmart me, Apple. <laughs> Who dares challenge the great and powerful Apple? Uh-oh. Series on to us. Quick, cut to commercial. Uh, here's a word from one of the other podcasts of the Christmas Podcast Network. Uh-huh. I know you. You're tired of the same old joy of human compassion, overflowing generosity, and quaint, totally anxiety-free coziness of the holidays. You need Christmas to get a little bit weird. I'm Craig Kringle, and I've got you covered. On the Weird Christmas Podcast, I talk to a never-ending garland of writers, historians, filmmakers, and rampant weirdos who do their best to make sure we don't forget just how beautifully odd this holiday can be. We cover everything from Krampus to Christmas werewolves, the real winter elves like the Scandinavian Tomten and Nissa, to Iceland's 13 Yule Lads. And every year we share a good old traditional Christmas ghost story to keep things festive. I also host an annual flash fiction contest so we don't have to read Dickens again. So if you're a real traditionalist who wants Christmas to get back to its roots of creepy monsters, acknowledging the frozen, lifeless heart of winter and eating animal heads, come over to the Weird Christmas Podcast. Or check out weirdchristmas.com and all the surreal vintage postcards I share on social media. So Merry Christmas, and here's hoping Krampus doesn't whip you off to hell. Welcome back. A couple years ago, we went a whole year answering the question, Is Die Hard a Christmas Movie? That was a fun segment, and I thought it was the last time we'd have to argue about whether a movie was a Christmas movie or not. But thanks to the internet and its love of arguing about things, I'm introducing a new segment to the show. So now it's time to play the holiday season's hottest new game. Is. It. A. Christmas Movie! That's right, it's not just Die Hard. There are a bunch of movies that Christmas gatekeepers want to argue about. In honor of Halloween being about a week away, today we're talking about The Nightmare Before Christmas. Oh, somewhere deep inside of these bones and emptiness 
began to grow There's something out there far from my home A longing that I've never known So this is a special case. This movie has elements of Halloween and Christmas in it. So the question has come up for many of you. Is it a Halloween movie or a Christmas movie? To answer that question, we've got to take a close look at the movie. Was a long time ago, longer now than it seems, in a place that perhaps you've seen in your dreams. For the story that you are about to be told took place in the holiday worlds of old. Now, you probably wondered where holidays come from. If you haven't, I'd say it's time you begun. The movie's about Jack Skellington. He's from a place called Halloween Town. This town is full of witches, vampires, and other monsters and is the source of Halloween. Jack is the main man of Halloween Town. Like, there's a mayor, but everybody looks to Jack because he's the one that really makes Halloween awesome. But here's the thing. He's over it. He sings a whole song in the moonlight where he longs for something new. I imagine this song is similar to what Luke Skywalker's inner monologue would be when he's staring out at that binary sunset in Star Wars A New Hope. Somewhere deep inside these bones An emptiness began to grow There's something out there far from home A longing that I've never I spent a lot of time working on something that is super ridiculous. At this point, we meet Sally, a gender-swapped Frankenstein's monster who has a monster crush on Jack Skellington. She watches him sing his Disney Princess I Want song, and she relates because she also wants more out of life. But in her case, it's a little more understandable because she's locked in her castle every night by her creator, Dr. Finkelstein. Kind of have more sympathy for Sally than Jack. Jack is bummed because he's the best at what he does and everybody loves him, but he's tired of it. So, yeah, not as relatable, you know? But whatever, I'm not here to tell anyone that their feelings are invalid. So Jack goes wandering off alone. He didn't see Sally watching him, and he ditches his ghost dog, Zero, who has a jack-o'-lantern nose that glows with the power of foreshadowing. Anyway, after Jack has been wandering for a while, lost in his thoughts, he gets to this series of doors in the middle of the woods. Each door has a symbol painted on it representing a commercially viable holiday in the United States. He sees one with a big Christmas tree on it, and he opens it and gets sucked into Christmas Town. What's this? In here, they've got a little tree. How queer! And who would ever think, and why? They're covering it with tiny little things. They've got electric lights on strings, and there's a smile in everyone. So now correct me if I'm wrong. This looks like fun, this looks like fun. Oh, could it be? I got my wish. What's this? Jack loves the idea of Christmas. He runs back to Halloween Town to tell everyone all about it. After spending a while trying to understand what Christmas is, he decides Halloween Town is going to do Christmas this year. He gets to town working on making presents. He gets Dr. Finkelstein to make flying reindeer, and he sends some kids to go grab Santa from Christmas Town. I'm not sure why he sends these particular kids, though. These kids are Lock, Shock, and Barrel, and they appear to be the lackeys of the one bad guy in Halloween Town, Oogie Boogie. Jack is adamant that Oogie Boogie not know about this, but then sends his three BFFs to go get Santa? Sadly, this is just one of many of the flaws in Jack's plan. 
The Christmas that Halloween Town is putting together is more frightful than fun. Sally somehow senses this is going to end badly, and she tries to warn Jack, but he is not having it. He is excited about this Christmas thing. Finally, after one failed attempt, Lockstock and Beryl come back with Santa Claus, who is pretty calm considering the insanity he is now in the middle of. Jack tells the kids to stash Santa somewhere, and of course, the kids take him straight to Oogie Boogie. Release me fast, or you will have to answer for this heinous act. Oh, brother, you're something! You put me in a spin! You aren't comprehending the position that you're in. It's hopeless. You're finished. You haven't got a prayer. Cause I'm Mr. Oogie Boogie, and you ain't going nowhere. <laughs> Meanwhile, Sally has used a potion to make it super foggy so that Jack can't take off in his ghost sleigh. But fortunately, Jack's dog has that conveniently Rudolph-esque shiny nose. So boom, Jack is up and out and delivering his creepy Halloween presents and scaring the dickens out of all the kids who are inexplicably up at midnight. It gets so bad that the army actually shoots Jack down. Meanwhile, Oogie Boogie has Santa and he's threatening him, but he's taking his sweet time in true Bond villain fashion. Sally sneaks in and tries to free him, and it almost works, but she ends up getting caught too. Back in the real world, Jack climbs out of the rubble of his sleigh and realizes he made a big mistake. But he's into Halloween again, so there's that. But he realizes that Christmas has to be saved, so he goes to get Santa. He arrives at Oogie Boogie's just in time. He defeats Oogie Boogie and frees Santa and Sally. Santa flies off to make everything right in terms of Christmas, but before he heads back to Christmas Town, he makes a return trip to Halloween Town and gives them the gift of a snowy white Christmas. Jack finally appreciates Sally and the two share a kiss in the snowy night. The end. It's great to be home. Happy Halloween. Merry Christmas. So you can see how this is confusing for people. Is this a Halloween movie or a Christmas movie? I'm not sure yet. There's a whole lot of both in there. Perhaps we need to go beyond the film and take a peek behind the scenes. I'm beginning to think you aren't so much interested in settling the debate as you are interested in doing a deep dive into this movie. What? Hmm. Anyway, this story begins with a Disney animator in the early 80s. He doesn't quite fit the Disney mold. They want him to draw cute little talking foxes, but he's more into skeletons and monsters. The animator was, of course, Tim Burton. While he was at Disney, he wrote a short poem that would later be the basis for this film. He was inspired by the stores that would put Christmas decorations out before the Halloween ones were gone, so you would have this odd mix of both. And from that small germ came this poem. It was late one fall in Halloween land, and the air had quite a chill. Against the moon, a skeleton sat alone upon a hill. He was tall and thin, with a bat bow tie. Jack Skellington was his name. He was tarred and bored in Halloween land. The poem has the bare bones, no pun intended, but definitely enjoyed, of what the movie ended up being. You had Jack in Halloween Town, finding Christmas Town, taking over Christmas, getting shot down, and Santa saving the day. However, there's no Sally and there's no Oogie Boogie. But the biggest difference that I'm sad didn't make it into the movie was Jack's motivation for taking over Christmas. In the poem, he's jealous that Christmas is fun and full of joy, but Halloween Town is dark and full of scares. He finds it unfair that he's been saddled with a depressing holiday. He wants a chance to make people happy instead of scared. I think that's a great motivation, more so than, oh, I'm bored with being the best at what I do. I want to try something new. 
Side note, if you're a Disneyland fan, you'll notice something familiar in the original poem. It was the nightmare before Christmas, and all through the house, not a creature was peaceful, not even a mouse. The stockings, all hung by the chimney with care, when opened that morning would cause quite a scare. That's the same thing the ghost host reads in the Nightmare Before Christmas Haunted Mansion overlay. Twas the nightmare before Christmas, and all through the house, not a creature was peaceful, not even a mouse. The stockings, all hung by the chimney with care, when opened that morning, would cause such a scare. So Tim Burton had intended to adapt the poem as a half-hour Christmas special. He said he was inspired by things like the Rankin-Bass Rudolph special or Chuck Jones's Grinch. But he couldn't get any interest because folks thought it was too weird. Burton left Disney in the mid-80s and became a director. A pretty successful one, too. With hits like Pee-wee's Big Adventure, Beetlejuice, and especially 1989's Batman, the folks at Disney were like, uh, maybe we need to get this guy back into the fold? So... They sat down for a meeting with him, and he pitched The Nightmare Before Christmas as a stop-motion full-length movie. He described it as The Grinch in reverse. This guy loves Christmas so much, he wants to do it himself. Now, Tim Burton was busy with the post-production on Batman Returns and pre-production on Ed Wood, so he didn't have the time to direct the film himself. Plus, he was not particularly interested in spending every day dealing with the stop-motion photography, which can be a tedious task. So, he called on his friend, Henry Selick. Disney wasn't sold on it at first, but they did some test footage of Jack getting shot out of the sky, and Disney greenlit them to make the movie. But then came the task of fleshing that two-page poem out into a full-length motion picture. Tim brought on Michael McDowell, with whom he'd worked on Beetlejuice, but they weren't able to work it out. So Tim turned to his longtime music collaborator, Danny Elfman, and the decision was made to turn the film into a musical. Danny actually wrote the songs in the order that they appear in the film based on the basic outline of the story and some sketches from Tim Burton. And I have to say, if you want to hear a fascinating, in-depth exploration of Danny Elfman's music for this movie, check out two episodes of a podcast called The Soundtrack Show. This is a fascinating show hosted by David W. Collins, and that dude loves music more than I love Christmas, which should be impossible! But hearing him talk about movie music is wonderful. Am I spending this long plugging his show because I want him to come on this show as a guest one day? Yes. Yes, I am. But also, his discussion of Danny Elfman's songs and how they tell the story of this movie musically, not just lyrically, is fascinating and supremely entertaining. Check out the links to both of those episodes in the show notes of this episode. But back to the making of the movie. Their schedule was so tight that they actually had to start production on the songs before the full script for the movie was finished. And they needed all that time. Each second of film needed 24 individual frames. And on a good day, they could shoot 48 frames a day. That means even on their best day, they were only shooting two seconds of movie. And if they messed up one frame, they had to start all the way over. I remember watching a Comic-Con panel with some of the creators of the movie, and they were talking about how they had spent two weeks on this one scene. And once they were done with it, they had to put a fog special effect on the scene. But to do that, they had to run it through this special process. That process ruined the original film, so they had to do the entire shot over again. I will never work in stop-motion animation. I do not have the patience for it. Henry Selick decided the movie should be filmed in San Francisco, far away from the Disney headquarters and the studio's watchful eye, because Disney had some... interesting notes? Like, they were pretty adamant that Jack Skellington have eyeballs. I saw a mock of it, and it was... unsettling. 
Then there's the casting. Danny Elfman fell in love with the character of Jack Skellington when he was writing the songs and performing them for the demo tracks. He had a hard time picturing anyone else but him doing his voice. Tim Burton assured him that he would be Jack's singing voice, but it was decided that his speaking voice was a little too high energy for Jack. So Chris Sarandon, perhaps best known for his role as Prince Humperdinck in The Princess Bride, was brought in to be Jack's speaking voice. The voice of Sally was provided by Catherine O'Hara, who had previously worked with Tim Burton on Beetlejuice, and shortly before recording her part for this movie, left for vacation without her son. Kevin! Catherine's performance reminds me of Bradley Cooper as Rocket Raccoon. Not because they sound anything alike, just the opposite. Neither one of their regular voices sound like the character at all. Catherine plays Sally with such a sincere innocence, which manages to be kind of childlike without being childish. It's a great vocal performance. Of course, I have to mention, Pee Wee Herman himself, Paul Rubens, is in the cast as well. He plays Locke, while Catherine and Danny do double duty as Shock and Beryl, respectively. Santa is played by Edward Ivory, and he does a marvelous job, but his involvement in this movie brings up not one, but two could-have-beens that kind of make me sad. Originally, Vincent Price was cast as Santa Claus. However, tragically, his wife passed away shortly before he started his recording sessions for the film and Henry Selleck felt his voice sounded too sad, so they recast him with Edward Ivory. The opening narration is also voiced by Edward Ivory, but if you bought the soundtrack, and I did because I was obsessed with the music from this movie as a kid, the opening narration on the soundtrack is provided by Sir Patrick Stewart. was a long time ago, longer now than it seems, in a place that perhaps you've seen in your dreams. For the story that you are about to be told began with the holiday worlds of old. Now, you've probably wondered where holidays come from. If you haven't, I'd say it's time you begun. For the holidays are the result of much fuss and hard work for the worlds that create them for us. Well, you see now, quite simply, that's all that they do. Making one unique holiday, especially for you. But once a calamity ever so great occurred when two holidays met by mistake. Why would they take that out? I mean, yes, it's slightly longer, but just cut out the extra bits and put it in the movie. How are you going to cut out Captain Picard? In addition, Patrick also does a closing narration on the soundtrack, which is not present at all in the film. And finally, everything worked out just fine. Christmas was saved, though there wasn't much time. But after that night, things were never the same. Each holiday now knew the other one's name. So the production of the movie is one thing. The marketing, quite another. Initially, this was going to be a Disney movie. Disney was really wrapping their arms around it. I remember the trailer in front of some Disney video that I had had as a kid. From the beginning, Walt Disney established a tradition of innovation. From the world's first full-length animated feature, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, to the new photographic techniques introduced in 101 Dalmatians, the combination of animation and live action in Who Framed Roger Rabbit, and the dazzling use of computer technology in Beauty and the Beast. Now, Walt Disney Pictures is joining forces with Tim Burton, the creative genius behind Batman, Beetlejuice, and Edward Scissorhands, to bring you one of the most unique and innovative movies of our time, The Nightmare Before Christmas. Then I noticed the next time I saw a trailer for this movie, it wasn't a Disney movie anymore. It was a Touchstone Pictures movie all of a sudden. Haven't you heard of peace on Earth and goodwill toward men? Touchstone Pictures presents the enchanting story of two very special dreamers and the holiday spirit that brought them together. 
Apparently, we owe this change to Disney getting cold feet after a disappointing preview screening. Danny Elfman talked about it in an interview a few years back. It did one preview before it opened, and I think from that preview, Disney basically learned there was no audience for this movie and kids hated it. (laughs) And so uh, all merchandising was pulled, and uh, the marketing suddenly shifted from what was going to be towards a young audience to try to find an adult audience or almost sell it like it was wrong. They, they had no idea what to do with it. The, the preview was a disaster. Um, and I remember being in the elevator and the producer and some of the executives going, well, kids hate it. <laughs> oh, well, it was this kind of like sad feeling in the elevator. And I, I knew it was wrong, but there's nothing you can do. They put it in front of a bunch of kids. They were expecting a Disney animation. And obviously... They were expecting something closer to you know, The Lion King or Little Mermaid, and they were getting Nightmare Before Christmas. Nevertheless, the film came out and was a modest success, making back twice its budget. It was also very critically successful and was nominated for an Academy Award for Best Special Effects and probably would have won if Jurassic Park hadn't come out this same year. But unlike most movies that pretty much go away, The Nightmare Before Christmas became more and more popular after its theatrical release. Disney started to notice the growing interest year over year and started making merchandise, reissuing the film in theaters, and of course, letting the movie take over the Haunted Mansion for a fourth of the year. They even put the Disney name back on it a few years back. A friend of mine, Steven, actually decorates his house every Halloween like The Nightmare Before Christmas. Now, when I say that, I don't mean he bought a couple decorations from the store. This dude does an overlay on his house that is worthy of the haunted mansion. Like, he made a life-size door to Christmas Town. It looks exactly like the one in the movie, but, you know, for real. You gotta check out his Instagram, Foster's Holidays. I'll put a link in the show notes. So, knowing all this, is Nightmare Before Christmas a Christmas movie or a Halloween movie? I'd say there's a pretty strong argument for it being a Christmas movie. I mean, the movie starts at the end of Halloween, so Halloween is over right away. Then, they spend most of the movie preparing for Christmas. There's even a Linus moment in that Jack realizes what Christmas is all about. True, he realizes it because he ruined it, but it still counts. The inspiration for the movie was Christmas specials like Rudolph and the Grinch. The original poem is clearly in the mold of A Visit from St. Nicholas. If you're looking to justify this as a Christmas film, the evidence is there. But... The opening number is literally a song about Halloween. Most of the movie takes place in Halloween Town. Because of the Tim Burton aesthetic, everything looks kind of off and creepy, even when they go to Christmas Town. Also, Jack not only learns the true meaning of Christmas, but at the same time, he learns to appreciate Halloween again. And my friend Steven, who does that amazing decorating job at his house, he doesn't leave it all the way up till Christmas. He takes it down after Halloween, and he does a separate... But no less impressive Christmas decoration that has no Halloween in it for Christmas. And perhaps the strongest argument, when Danny Elfman was asked this question a few years back, he said, it's a Halloween movie. So, I guess the official ruling on this is that it's a Halloween movie. So, to go back to the question that started this segment, Is it a Christmas movie? Yes! What? Yes, Nightmare Before Christmas is a Christmas movie. But you just said it was a Halloween movie! If I may paraphrase an old El Paso commercial, why not both? There's nothing in the rule book that says it can't be a Halloween movie and a Christmas movie. This segment was pointless. Maybe so, but I gotta talk about this movie for a while, and that's the greatest gift of all, isn't it? Uh, Merry Halloween, everybody!
it's time for the next installment of our made-for-podcast Christmas movie, A Bomb for Christmas. The Hallmark Countdown to Christmas kicked off this weekend, so you can once again get your fill of this cinematic equivalent of comfort food. But the only place you're going to get a mixture of that style mixed with Die Hard is right here. For instance, when was the last time you watched a Hallmark movie and they blew up the hero? I haven't watched them all, but I'm pretty sure never. That's what we did last time, so how will the story continue if we blew up the couple we were following? Have no fear, dear listener. All your questions are about to be answered in Chapter 6 of A Bomb for Christmas. Exterior, Port Caldwell, Main Square, Day. A large marching band is getting into formation as George is giving them some last-minute words of encouragement. All right, you guys are looking great. Remember to keep your eyes on the shoes of the person in front of you. The float for the Christmas Queen will be right in front of you, and Santa's sleigh is right behind you. So you have to keep your pace steady. But most of all, have fun out there. It's going to be a great parade. Some snowflakes start to fall. <laughs> Don't worry, a little Christmas snow during the parade is good luck. I hope. Betty runs up to George. George, George, you have to see this. What's that, Betty? The festival is trending on Twitter right now. Really? Yes. I went to post a picture of the winning gingerbread house on the coffee shop's Twitter, and that's when I saw it. Thousands of tweets in the last hour. That's great. We're getting some publicity. I thought you'd like that. But who is Joe McCringleberry? Wait, what? Is he related to the McCringleberry family over on Garfield Street? Yes, he's their son and he's a professional football player. Who made you ask about him? Exterior, Christmas Marketplace, Day. Gern stands in front of the bustling Christmas marketplace giving a news report straight into camera. We've got breaking news from the festival. It appears the identity of tonight's mystery tree lighting guest has been leaked online. The internet is abuzz with the news that pro football superstar Joe McCringleberry has returned to his hometown for tonight's ceremony. People here are also abuzz with excitement as the news has been spreading through the festival. Like this young man here. What's your name? I'm Jim Townsend from the 63rd Aerial Port Squadron. Well, first of all, thank you for your service. And second, are you a big Joe McCringleberry fan? Bet I am. Did you see that 61-yard field goal last year? McCringleberry rules! Interior, police station, day. There's a TV playing Gern's news report while Tracy sits typing at her computer. So, are you going to see him tonight at the tree lighting? You bet. I called all my buddies from the 63rd. Chad, Michael, and Murray are all on their way down here right now. There you have it. People are coming out in droves to see McCringleberry. It's definitely going to be packed tonight. So get on down here while you can. The tree lighting ceremony happens at 5 p.m. That's 1,700 hours for our military friends. Tracy looks up at the television and cocks an eyebrow. The captain walks up behind Tracy. Tracy, what are you still doing here? Uh, just trying to finish up something before I go home. When I made you Holly's partner, I hoped you'd make her less of a workaholic, not the other way around. I don't know what to tell you, Cap. You seem to hire a lot of workaholics. I gotta start putting that question on the application. So, what is it you're working on? You don't want to know. Don't tell me. The Tirapelli case? Uh... We handed that case over to the FBI and Homeland Security. Um... You've been talking to Holly about this case? Uh... What was the point of sending her on vacation? She wondered the same thing. I really thought she'd be knee-deep in the festival right now. Captain points to the TV. I'm here with Head of Festival Security, Alana Rikmanovich. 
What can you tell us about Joe McCringleberry's return to Port Caldwell? I can neither confirm or deny the rumors about Joe McCringleberry attending the festival tonight. Oh, hey, it's the lady who used to run that restaurant down the street. What? That Russian restaurant that closed a while back. I think she was the owner. Wonder how she got involved in providing security. I got a call, Holly. Exterior, festival office, day. The camera pans around the building, revealing a huge hole in the side of the building that's facing away from the festival. The camera zooms into that hole and transitions to... Interior, festival office meeting room, day. The room has been thoroughly destroyed. There are broken, charred pieces of office furniture strewn all around the room and a thin layer of smoke in the air. Against the wall is a very beat-up looking file cabinet that starts to move. It falls over to reveal that Holly and Bobby were behind it. They look mostly unharmed except for some mild scorch marks on their clothes and one or two tiny cuts on their faces. They dust themselves off and look around the room. You okay? I think so. But I've never really been blown up before. How am I supposed to feel? Not sure. That was a first for me, too. One thing's for sure. Alana is fired. I'd say trying to blow up your boss has got to be against the Christmas festival bylaws. Wait a minute. This isn't right. Really? I think I'm well within my rights to fire Alana for this. No, not that. Look around. Yeah, this office is trashed. The office is, but the building is still standing. Not for long. They're going to tear this place down right after the new year. But the amount of chemicals that Tierpoli stole should have made a way bigger explosion than this. There shouldn't have been anything left of this building for them to tear down in January. And you and I should be history. I guess we should be happy that Alana is bad at building bombs? Or there's a second bomb. I like my idea better. Come on, we have to get back to the festival and find Alana before something else blows up. Exterior, Port Caldwell Main Square, Day. The festival is packed with people. George and Betty make their way through the crowd to talk to Alana. Alana, there you are. I was doing an interview with the local news station. How did the internet find out that McCringleberry was here? I have no idea, but clearly it's helping attendance. Helping? The festival is already over capacity. The parade is having to fight through crowds of people just to go down the street. What can we do about this? The genie is pretty much out of the bottle. Not much we can do about that. Is McCringleberry safe? Yeah, he's still back at his hotel room. Well, it's not going to take people long to figure out where he's staying. Yeah, it's not like we have a million hotels here in Port Caldwell. Well, I was going to go over there soon anyway. The tree lighting is coming up. I can just go over early. Good. I feel much safer knowing you're there with him. Of course. After all, McCringleberry is my primary mission. We'll manage the crowds here and try and get them into something resembling order before the tree lighting. Don't worry, everything is going to work out the way it should. Alana heads off to the hotel. How exactly are we going to get this massive crowd under control? Well, I have no idea. I wish Bobby was here. Maybe try a cell again? Exterior, Port Caldwell Street's day. Holly and Bobby are pushing through the crowd as the parade goes by. Bobby's phone rings. It's George. Bobby answers the phone. George, are you okay? Bobby? Where, where have you been? It's a long story. It's been a crazy day. It still is a crazy day. Somehow the internet got wind that McCringleberry is here. Now people are pouring into the festival. No wonder it's so crowded. We gotta get people out of here in case... Holly grabs the phone from Bobby. George, this is Holly. Where's Alana? She went to McCringleberry's hotel to make sure he's safe. Okay. Try to manage the crowds as best you can. We'll meet up with you soon. Holly hangs up and throws the phone back to Bobby. Why didn't you mention the bomb? Two reasons. 
One, we don't know where the bomb is at this point. Two, I'm pretty sure Alana leaked that McCringleberry was here so that we'd get this massive overcrowding. If we try to evacuate now, it'll just cause a panic, and in a mob this size, that could be even more dangerous than the bomb itself. So what should we do? We're going to find Alana, and she's going to tell us where the bomb is so we can defuse it. What if she doesn't tell us? Then Grandma won't be the only one run over by a reindeer this year. Interior, Captain's Office, Day. Tracy knocks on the captain's door. Come on in. Tracy enters the office. Any luck getting a hold of Holly? (sighs) No, just keeps going to voicemail. But I'm pretty sure I know where the bomb is going to be. Great. Let's tell the FBI and they can handle it. I don't think there's enough time. What do you mean? Holly had me send her the translation of the Russian note we found at Tirapelli's. So my orders are useless around here. Yes, yes. Bad, Tracy. No presents for me this year. Whatever. The point is, I was looking at the numbers and I think I figured out what they mean. Oh, you're a code cracker now. You know what? I already used that line on Holly and you're making this take longer than it needs to. Okay. Please continue. Take a look at this first line. 8661122411700. They've been trying to run it through a cipher, but I think you have to break it down bit by bit. 86 or 86 as in to get rid of somebody. 61 or 61 like a 61 yard field goal. 1224 or 1224 or December 24th today. And then 1700 or 1700 hours, 5 p.m., the exact time the tree lighting starts in Port Caldwell. Good lord, I think you're right. We've got to call the Port Caldwell Police Department. With all the craziness going on with McCringleberry at the festival, the lines are just jammed. We need to grab a car and get over there. If we leave right now... It's no use. Traffic is a mess getting into Port Caldwell. Even with sirens blaring, we'd never get through in time. Well, we can't just sit here. No, we can't, Detective. Grab your gear and meet me on the roof. Santa's not the only one taking to the sky tonight. Interior, McCringleberry's hotel room, day. Joe McCringleberry sits on his bed watching football. There's a knock at the door. Joe opens the door to find Alana. Hey, Alana. A little early, aren't you? Alana pulls out a gun and barges into the room. No, Joe. I'm right on time. Alana slams the door shut behind her. Interior, mystery location, day. We are once again in a tiny, dark space. The only thing visible is a device with wires and chemicals and a digital timer that is getting closer and closer to zero. End Act 6. Cut to commercial. This section of A Bomb for Christmas featured music from Kevin McLeod and sounds from various sources, all licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0 license. For more information, check the show notes of this episode. Okay, you had to know Holly and Bobby weren't actually blown up, but will they get to Alana in time to save McCringleberry? You'll have to find out next time. Special shout out to my former roommate and best man at my wedding, Noah, for stepping in to play McCringleberry. If you don't know, the name McCringleberry is borrowed from a sketch on the Key and Peele show. I kept trying to come up with a generic sports-sounding name, but every time I Google them, they turned out to be a real sports guy. So I went with McCringleberry because I love Key and Peele, so a shout out to them seemed fun, and because the name kind of sounds Christmassy. Kringle, Chris Kringle, Berry, Cranberries, it all works. It all works.
And while I'm shouting out the cast, can I just say what a joy it is to edit together the voice recordings these performers send me every month. This whole endeavor has been far more rewarding than I ever would have thought. So let me thank you all by name. My lovely wife, Danelle, as Holly, Brendan as Bobby, Mike Westfall from the Advent Colander House podcast as the captain, Edward as George, Trish as Betty, of course, my buddy Noah as Joe, and a special thanks to Justin, who had to record his part as Gurn the Reporter twice because some celebrity cameos ghosted me at the last second, so we had to rewrite their parts out of the show. That's why the imaginary listener that sounds like Kermit the Frog made an appearance this time. So, thanks to Justin for saving us there. And also, extra special thanks to Kristen, who plays Tracy. There were some technical difficulties when she sent me her recording the first time, and some of the lines were actually missing from the recording. But she gave me so many good alternate takes that I was able to actually use one of her alternate takes to rewrite the dialogue, and it made the joke funnier. But then she ultimately re-recorded because there were some other lines that I just couldn't fix around. So thank you, Kristen, for coming in, letting me pest you in the middle of the night, and helping us put on a show. Again, thanks to all of you, and join us next time for the penultimate chapter of A Bomb for Christmas. And that's our show. Thank you so much for listening. Be sure to get ahead of the curve this year by stopping by the website and grabbing your holiday cards from our selection of new designs. Or the designs from years past. They're there too. I'll have links to all of them at can'twaitforchristmaspod.com. I'll also have links to the Foster's Holidays Instagram and the Soundtrack Show podcast. I highly recommend you check both of those out. And I hope you have a merry but safe Halloween. Remember to wear your mask, wash your hands, and through it all, you believers, keep laughing all the way. And that was Christmas 1983. Actually, Dad, it's 2020. Oh. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Can't Wait for Christmas podcast. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. Remember, if you leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, a.k.a. iTunes, and email us about it at christmas at tancast.com, we'll send you a free Can't Wait for Christmas sticker. If you'd like to see the show notes or leave a comment on this or any other episodes, you can go to our official website, can'twaitforchristmaspod.com. While you're there, you'll find a link to our official Zazzle store, where you can grab customizable t-shirts, ornaments, stickers, and all sorts of other Christmas-themed items all year long. We'd love to connect with you on social media. On Facebook and Instagram, we are Can't Wait for Christmas Pod. And on Twitter, we are at Christmas Pod. We Wish You a Merry Christmas was performed by the United States Marine Corps Band, and this amazing version of Jingle Bells on the accordion was performed by the wonderful and talented Christian Nowicki. All other music and sounds used in this episode are the properties of their individual copyright holders, and they are used for purposes of commentary and review. No infringement is intended. Okay, boys, did I forget anything? God bless us, everyone. Merry Christmas! I've never actually seen the movie Glengarry Glen Ross, but I have watched the famous scene with Alec Baldwin motivating. Baldwin. His name is not Alec Baldwin. So I better correct it because I hear he gets angry. I've never actually seen the movie Glengarry. I've never actually seen the movie Glengarry Glen Ross. <laughs> He's going to come in here and be like, hey, podcasts are for closers. <laughs>
<laughs> A-B-O. Always be outtaking. Great Pumpkins window is Octor Thir- Octor? It's Octor 30th! I don't know why I did do that accent after. Like, the outtake was bad, and then the goof up after the outtake was bad. All of it was bad. Flush it. And It's a Charlie Brown Christmas will be available for free on Apple TV from December 13th through the 11th. That's backwards. You can't watch it backwards unless you're in a TARDIS, a DeLorean, or a phone booth? What is it? Bill and Ted traveling? It's a phone booth, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, back to what I was saying. But in her case, it's a little more understandable because she's locked in her castle every night by her creator, Dr. Finkelstein. Finkelstein or Finkelstein? I'm going to say Finkelstein. Nope, I'm going to say Finkelstein. I should look it up is what I should do, but I'm not going to. I'm going to pick one or the other, and I'm probably going to be wrong. That's, that's how Tim lives his life. The poem has the bare buns. No pun intended. The bare buns? There's no bare buns in this poem. I promise you. I've only listened to it the once, but I don't remember any bare buns. Keep, those, keep some pants on those buns. But hearing him talk about movie music, movie music, you got to hear him talk about the movie music. Again, what are these accents? Like, first I say the word wrong, then I do this goofy accent that doesn't even make any sense. Just stop flapping your lips, Bab. <laughs> 